Kirk Franklin. Only Kirk Franklin can do it just like that. Lift every voice and sing. Uh, so many iterations, so many versions of that song. We thought we would start with that one in this hour. And speaking of this hour, I have been dying to have this com- Well, not dying. I don't, don't want to say I'm dying. But I've been waiting on this conversation. Uh, you talking about brilliance um, personified. I am so delighted, finally, on this program to have Columbia professor, a award-winning author, scholar of race, culture, and power, Dr. Shauna L. Redmond, who joins us for a conversation in this hour about the historical impact of music in our protest. We will unpack the cultural history of black racial formations and performance politics in this hour. Now that Dr. Redmond joins us, what an honor to have you on. How are you today, Dr. Redmond? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to have you on. Thank you for the time. Glad we've got the hour. A lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. Um, let me let, let me start with this. Um, I'm always curious, uh, as the audience knows, about the backstory of scholars and others who who are wrestling with fascinating issues and circumstances and conditions. Um, how did you decide to get on this particular track, given your work in witness? Well, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it, because I think it is an important one as we come to decide how we want to be in the world and what we study. These are formative questions. Um, so music has always been a really central part of how I've understood and processed the world. Music is how I've made sense of circumstances in my personal life and certainly was the case as I was growing up as a young person. I studied music in college formally and even in those moments when I recognized it was not welcoming to people like me, the formal study of music, even when I recognized it was not hospitable to the types of questions I was interested in, it continued to beckon and call me. And I went to graduate school and did a PhD in African American studies, which is one of the areas of most rich investigation of U.S. popular culture writ large, but certainly black musical cultures, African-American studies is the most dense location for its study, and so was really encouraged to do this work there. And it's having been trained by labor historians and people who are committed to activist work that I decided as a graduate student I needed to figure out how to make some sense of and bring some language to the relationship between music and political identities within the African world. And I started doing some research. Actually, Lift Every Voice and Sing was the first song that became my dissertation, that became my first book, Anthem. Mm -hmm. It was evidence of having seen it translated into Japanese that alerted my attention to anthems in the African world and what this music does as a statement of political solidarity and citizenship. So it was really an effort to bring all the pieces of myself to the table, all of my political investments, while also catering to and really highlighting the music that sustained me. I'm glad you brought all your stuff to the table, uh, and I expect that in this hour as well. So uh, there, yes, is, there, there is a lot to unpack in this hour. You've already said a few things I want to interrogate right quick. Let me start with this. Um, tell me a bit more. You teased me with this, but now I want to drill a little deeper. I'll let you drill a little deeper. Tell me more about what you found and why you think you found the fact that uh, the reality that uh, the formal study of music, as you put it, uh, has not been so welcoming and hospitable to people who look like you and me. What's that about? I, I think it's a about a lot of things. One is the formal music of study has really privileged the white Western canon, which is primarily interested in dead men. 
and the investments in U.S. popular culture have really only developed kind of in the post-civil rights moment where people have started to take seriously the fact that we learn who we are through popular culture and we reflect all of the contradictions and all of the tensions in our identities through these competing, easily accessible kinds of performances that are developed in U.S. popular culture. And at the very root of that, the foundation of that becomes black musical practice, whether it be our development of rock and roll all the way through hip hop, that black popular musics have really been at the forefront of what we identify globally as U.S. popular cultures. And so the fact that that was not a committed part of study within colleges and university music departments means that race, gender, sexuality, all kinds of identities were elided by and large by what the Western canon was meant to reveal, which is that mm. the West was predominant, that notation mattered more than oral traditions, and that identity had no role to play whatsoever in the creation or consumption of music, which is just a lie. And yet... Um... I'm 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 stunned. I'm not stunned. I'm 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 stumped here for a second because I'm thinking. I'm trying to juxtapose two things. Your notion that you've laid out so beautifully about how unwelcoming, how not hospitable, um, this field of study has been uh, for Black people in the formal study of music, and yet you can't talk about the soundtrack of our lives. And I mean all of our lives without the the imprint of black music on it. Uh, and it's just, it's strange that folk would want to ignore that. I'm not naive in asking the question, but why ignore that? Why not, why not revel in that? I think because there's something at stake, that there are resources at stake, the kinds of sharing that would be required, both from an industry level, the kinds of resources that then might expend it, be expended, but then also to acknowledge the music, its creative genius, its impact on everyone's lives, as you mentioned, is to actually take seriously then the kinds of demands that black people were putting on the table for our citizenship and mm -hmm. protections of those citizenship rights. So if I tell you that your music is important to me, that it was formative in how I understood my relationship to the world, then you actually have to acknowledge my humanity. You have to meet me somewhere along that spectrum of difference. And you have to concede some space for that. And that's politically dangerous and continues to be. Mm. Uh, her book, Anthem, referenced earlier in this conversation, Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, is classic. And when I tell you it's a classic text, it is a go-to text. It's called Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora. We'll get to some of that in this hour. I love her book, Everything Man. The form and function of Paul Robeson. You've heard me say many times on this program, to my mind, this is just Tavis. Uh, there are two towering figures when it comes to being Renaissance people in our culture. For me, the ultimate Renaissance man, hard stop, is Paul Robeson. And my Angelo, I'd offer perhaps as the ultimate Renaissance woman. That's just my take on it. But there is no debate about Paul Robeson being the ultimate Renaissance man uh, created by our community. Uh, and she's written a text called Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson. So much to talk about uh, with regard to music and her study of it uh, and the impact of music on our protest. When we come forward, I'm going to ask her, because I know she can do it. I've seen her do it before, but she hasn't done it on this radio station, and you need to hear this. Uh, I'm going to ask her to offer a critique of the Star-Spangled Banner, and I suspect it's a, a, a critique that you have never heard but you're going to hear it for the first time. And the next time you hear the Star Spangled Banner, you will never process it in the same way. Stand by for that. Dr. Shauna L. Redman coming forward. 
in a moment on KBLA Talk 1580. Whitney Houston at the 1991 Super Bowl. I have personally never heard it done any better than Whitney did it that day. Ricky Miner, who produced that for Whitney Houston, was a guest in the studio not long ago. We talked about that day uh, and Whitney's approach to um, her performance of that uh, American classic. So now that you've heard Whitney just kill it, as only Whitney could, uh, put your seatbelt on and listen to Dr. Shada L. Redman's critique of the Star Spangled Banner. I ain't got to color it much more than that. We got time. Dr. Redman, take it away. Well, I appreciate that you played that version. That is the one version of the song that I would consider standing for. Um, The national anthem has proven itself time and time again to fail at its agenda to unify the nation. It has always been an exclusive enterprise an exclusive centerpiece to U.S. citizenship and its performance. And, of course, we know that all citizenship is precisely that. It is a performance. We engage in different ways with our relationship to the nation based on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But anthems, national anthems, are meant to stabilize our relationship to the nation, to always sing its virtues and extol praises upon this imagined group of people, this imagined community of individuals. So the Star-Spangled Banner gains its lyricism from wartime, early 19th century, the Battle of 1812. The language proceeds and is set to music, which is drawn from Britain, is not indigenous to the United States, but is drawn from Britain. Even in this moment of having just gained independence from the British, we've adopted their musical stylings as our own national marker and is used during the U.S. Civil War by the Union forces as they march into battle across the southern United States. So from its very inception, it's already a separatist, exclusive kind of enterprise The Confederacy was not singing the Star-Spangled Banner as they marched into war during the Civil War, and so there was already a musical antagonism between those forces that existed that continued well into the 20th century, even after emancipation. Black students were not being taught the Star-Spangled Banner, not only because it was exclusively at that point still used by the Union forces, by the Union states, of the post-Civil War landscape, but also because the citizenship rights of those African-descended peoples after the Civil War remained under threat and constant surveillance. So to encourage them to sing the national anthem would have been to concede that they, in fact, were citizens of this country, which the majority population was unwilling to concede and remains unwilling to concede in many respects. So the Star-Spangled Banner was always established as an exclusive enterprise meant only for those people who were codified as members of this elite society, this elite nation, those people whose citizenship was solidified by the expectations and special province of the United States. And it was only in 1931 
that it became the national anthem of the United States. Quite often our relationship to the Star-Spangled Banner is that it's existed since time immemorial, but it is a very modern construction and adoption. Only in 1931 is it adopted and marked by President Hoover as the national anthem of the United States. At this moment where the nation is reeling, the world is reeling under grave economic conditions, the worldwide depression, the U.S. desperately needed something to hold everyone together, something to identify one another with. How might you find camaraderie and collectivity with your neighbor? Well, if you sing the same song, and that same song announces the glory of the nation, then the nation stands to benefit from that performance. And so the national anthem is developed as a means of cohering a nation that is still deeply, gravely divided by Jim Crow, by anti-immigrant sentiment, by gender inequity, by all kinds of ways in which people's citizenship is compromised and revoked on a daily basis. And so the challenges that have arisen to the national anthem from black musicians, black communities, immigrant communities who want to sing it in Spanish, for example, people who refuse to stand like Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, Colin Kaepernick, etc., is built into the structure of the song, which has been divisive and contentious from its very first iteration. Mm. <laughs> I uh, I wish I had a, a sound effect, Miles. I could just do a mic drop because that's what, that's what I want to do right here is just drop the mic after what uh, Dr. Redmond just said. Uh, that said, um, I wonder. I, I want to just drill down a little bit further here um, because we, we got everything you just said. But let's let let me take it a step further. Ask you to take it a step further, Dr. Redmond, and talk about the militaristic nature of those lyrics. The lyrics itself, when we hear. Uh, and the rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air. Uh, we couldn't be singing anything more militaristic, uh, could we? No, absolutely not. And it's meant to make militarism a part of the U.S. common sense. That because we repeat it in our songs, we therefore find it unexceptional when we are constantly in a state of war, constantly in a state of aggression domestically and abroad. And so those are the kinds of tricks of U.S. citizenship, of other nationalized citizenships that allow us to kind of willingly concede to these kinds of aggressions that are at the very foundation of the nation as a construction. Mm. Um, give me your sense then. I heard you say a moment ago, I didn't miss it, uh, when I played the Whitney Houston version, you said it's the one version that you would consider standing for. As one who has studied this song in the way that you have, the lyrics of the song, and I'm a lyric lover, I'm a lyricist myself, as one who studied it uh, the way you have, how then have you seen um, the pushback by athletes and beyond against this particular song and all the hell they've endured for standing their ground, as it were? It's been incredible to see. Um, you know, this is not, Ka Colin Kaepernick, of course, was not the first person mm -hmm. to refuse to concede space uncritically to this song, but it was a really important moment for drawing attention again to our state of war and our states of exception. Who is allowed to access the rights and benefits that all citizens are meant to be respected by, are meant to receive, and to then perform through the singing of the national anthem and his critiques 
of ongoing police violence, which is low-grade domestic warfare. All of these things are really central to how people, particularly African-descended peoples, have engaged with this song over time. A song like Lift Every Voice and Sing becomes an alternative to the Star-Spangled Banner, and it was not from the mouth of its author, James Weldon Johnson, that this became true. It was actually people who heard the song in their churches, in their segregated schools, but also white benefactors and allies who argued that Lift Every Voice and Sing should be a replacement for the Star-Spangled Banner because it did not subscribe or concede to the militarism that the U.S. was profligating through this anthem. Mm. So there have been all kinds of challenges to this song in ways that have been incredibly meaningful for people and this militaristic element and the kinds of embedded elements of resistance have been really central to how people have refused and challenged its performance. We, we were discussing Lift Every Voice and Sing on this program some weeks ago, and I shared the story at the end that I love so much. You know it well. You're the professor here and the author of the iconic text, Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora. But I love the story of uh, James Weldon Johnson, as she said, wrote the song. His brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, wrote the music. They taught it to some school kids in Florida for a particular program. And um, when the program was over, that was it. But those kids grew up and those kids kept on singing that song out of Florida. And over time, the song sort of spread and the rest, as they say, is history. But uh, but those uh, those Johnson brothers did quite a number on the. And again, if you listen to the lyrics or pay attention to the lyrics of that song, lift every voice and sing. James Weldon Johnson, uh, prolific as he was, did nothing better to my mind uh, in his corpus uh, than just the words to that song. And uh, the lyrics are, are, are quite amazing. You said a moment ago or a few moments ago in this conversation that that music is a way into understanding our own political identities. Can you unpack that for me? Yeah, so a lot of times the way that we express ourselves in the world happens through our relationship to sound. It happens increasingly in isolation based on you know, individual iPods and things like that. We listen in solitary spaces, which was not, though, always the case. It was actually more the case that we would listen in public together before the advent of these kinds of isolating technologies. And so a lot of those elements, how do we choose together? How do, how do we democratically select the sounds of our world was a part of how people understood how to best manage their own individual identities identities, but also how to advance collective movements. So a lot of the, the arguments within Anthem is about how certain music is taken up organically, like Lift Every Voice and Sing, passing from mouth to mouth to mouth, people who are building entire communities around the performance of these songs, because these songs mean something to them politically. Mm -hmm. They help them to understand themselves better in the world and are taken up, adopted by people because they help to explain what the world is, but more than that, what it could be if we participate in these songs together, if we participate in these kinds of political moments together. Let but me, hold, hold, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Hold that thought one second. I, I, let me do some news, traffic, and sports right quick, and we'll come back and let Dr. Ribbon finish that particular point. That's on me, not on her. Uh, you're listening to KBLA Talk 15. I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, one 800 920-1580. I had someone who's probably listening to this program right now <laughs> who has my cell number call me last night just before midnight to say I got a question. I said, why you call me this late at night? They said, do you really have Dr. Shauna 
L. Revin on your program tomorrow? I said, I do. They said, how did you get Dr. Revin? I said, what, what, what do you want me to say? Won't, won't he do it? I mean, she said yes. We asked and she said yes. Uh, hence, uh, uh, my, my comment earlier uh, about uh, what a powerful sister she is and how sought after she is. Um, she is iconic uh, in this particular lane. Her book, Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora is a go-to text. We haven't even scratched the surface on that yet. And I do want to get her to say a word, as we will, uh, as she will, later in this hour, about Paul Robeson. Uh, her book is called, on his life and legacy, it's called Everything Man. Love that title, Everything Man. The form and function of Paul Robeson. So um, these two texts are, are, are quite, uh, quite brilliant. Uh, in their writing and uh, in their wrestling with issues of the grand contributions that uh, African Americans have made uh, to this country. Um, I, I think I want to go to this now, since we're playing Nina Simone here, uh, to be young, gifted, and black. You said earlier in this conversation, Dr. Redman, that, um, that we learn who we are by dissecting pop culture. Let, let, me, let me frame the question, form it this way. If one were visiting this planet from another, what would they learn particularly about the journey of black people by dissecting pop culture, by dissecting the music in America? I think that visitors would learn that we're indefatigable, that we come back again and again and again, no matter how many hits, no matter how many devastations we stick around and we fight again. And I want to resist just a simple language of resilience and say that it's more like fortitude and it's more like continued study. Mm -hmm. I mean, the example of Nina Simone, someone who throughout her entire life was constantly engaging her communities, engaging the sounds of the world around her, pulling from jazz and blues and R&B and rock and all of these things. That study is a central part of how we come back and we create things that are new and genius over and over and over again. So I think the, the lesson to be taken from a visitor, but also from the history itself, is that we labor over these things because they are meaningful. This is not just you turning on the radio and somebody trying to make a quick dime. Mm. People invest in these creations in ways that exceed the marketplace, in ways that exceed genre, and it's significant for us to really wrestle with people, what people are, wrestle with what people are putting into the world. Yeah. What What do you make of the fact that uh, musically, um, it has been the case uh, down through the years uh, that our artists, Nina Simone um, among them, that our artist Paul Paul Robeson among them. What do you make of the fact that uh, musically, our artists have had the stature, um, the platform, the opportunity. Uh, from time to time to say things during our struggle that we could not say, but artistically they were able to push it out uh, in their own music and to force America to wrestle with the humanity and the dignity of our people. I think it's a testament to these people and the communities who supported them. Both Nina Simone and Paul Robeson were clear about the fact that they came from somewhere from some people, that they were not islands in this vast ocean of humanity, but they were part of elaborate, gorgeous archipelagos of people who made them believe the things that they believed. And so for them to then have been able to step out, not as single 
announcers or icons, but as amplifiers for the stories of their people, the stories of people who otherwise would have no microphone, would have no pen and paper with which to write their own histories, is evidence that our musicians, again, are the historians, right? Amiri Baraka argued that the music, the music, this is our history. These are the people who are actually writing our stories and telling the counter-narratives that allow us to believe when we're told that we're beautiful and we're strong and we're powerful. These are the people who are actually convincing us of that because they're in our ears every single day and reassuring us of that fact. Mm. Let me ask a strange question, uh, not the first or last strange, bizarre question I will ask on this program. Um, but can you imagine, or how would you imagine, our lives without black music on the soundtrack? And no, I, 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 I asked that. I, 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 yeah, I know you can't. That's why I'm asking you. I, I raised that because Du Bois once was a Du Bois that once asked the question. Yeah, it was Du Bois. Would America have been America without her Negro people? That's Du Boisian to the core. Would America right. have been America without her Negro people? We know the answer to that question. I'm just trying to fine tune it for you. Would America be America without black folk on the soundtrack? No. Simply, I, I don't think that there would be any opportunity for us to have arisen to the level of global influence in the arts and cultures as we have were it not for African-descended peoples mm -hmm. and their music. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to conceive. Yeah, I, can, I, I hear you. Um, since I mentioned Paul Robeson and you followed up, I, I want to just stand down for a second. Um, obviously, there's an entire text written about this, uh, this this brilliant man, Everything Man is the name of the book, Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson. But can you just uh, just take a few minutes and just, I, I, don't, I don't even have a question, just take a few minutes and talk to me, uh, talk to us about the genius of one Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson is a figure who constantly amazes me. No matter how much I learn, no matter how much I hear of his voice, and I take him first as a musician, but as you mentioned, he is a complete Renaissance man, having been an actor and an orator and an activist and a philosopher and a linguist and all of these other things, an athlete, all-American athlete, all of these things, I take him first through his voice which in the book I use to carry us through all different forms of his elemental self, from his vibration to his hologram as he's sending his voice around the world while he's detained in the United States due to the maliciousness and the anti-blackness of the U.S. state who revokes his passport in 1950, as he's working in decolonial movements. I mean, this is someone who literally the world was his stage. At one point in his career, he was the most famous black person in the entire world. And yet, due to surveillance, both from the United States and the British, and the kinds of misinformation, the negative dogmas that were perpetuated by various colonial governments around the world, he was, for a certain period of time, and still in many respects to the present, erased from any kind of widespread public consciousness, even after this fantastic career as a major film star and stage performer. This, the fact that this person ever walked the earth 
still stuns me for all of his talents, for all of his commitments, for all of the people that he literally carried with him throughout his more than 40-year career of song. He pioneered the use of the Negro spirituals on the concert stage. He acted in the early films of Oscar Michaud. He pioneered the long run of Othello on Broadway. He did all of these things always with his hands out and his palms open to the rest of the world in empathy and deep solidarity with their concerns and struggles and movements. He was the greatest, one of the greatest humanitarians of the 20th century and someone whom everyone should know. Hmm. When you hear um, uh, Professor Redmond, Dr. Redmond, talk about Paul Robeson, uh, it leads me to ask the following, which I will do when we come forward in just a moment. Um, to, uh, to get her to say a bit more, beyond Paul Robeson even, about the challenges that these black artists have faced down through the years to push out their genius. You heard her say uh, moments ago that there is no America. Uh, there is no soundtrack without black folk on it. Uh, she can't even fathom, can't even uh, imagine that. Uh, and yet that didn't happen easily, right? Um, these artists have faced challenges um, throughout uh, to, 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 to get their genius uh, pushed out so that the world could hear it. And I want to get her take on how she sees that struggle, even today, uh, for certain artists. We'll continue when we come forward with Dr. Shauna L. Redman on KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Dr. Evans, say a word, if you will, about the, the challenges, the struggles that uh, uh, artists in black have had to make sure that, um, that we are not missing from the soundtrack. I think a lot of musicians have really taken seriously their challenge, their call to actually be stewards for their communities. And some people have met a tremendous amount of success in having done that, although the success might be weighed on very different kinds of scales. People like a Paul Robeson, who was never forgotten by African-descended peoples, even as maligned and villainized as he was by the state, the ways in which he shows up as the name of elementary schools or the memorial houses, the trees, the mountain peaks, literally, that adorn his name all around the world is evidence of his success, right? Or we might think about an industry success. There are many MCs who came to prominence for having repped their block or their neighborhood, right? That there are ways in which taking up the causes, the languages, the voices of the people around them have garnered them significant success. But there have also been people who have been very much maligned and hunted for similar kinds of investments. Mm. People who have lost entire careers, have fallen into obscurity, who have met violence, literal violence, for having done the work of rising to the occasion of political and social need amongst their communities. And I think that those are the kinds of challenges that still befall black musicians, even those who might be understood as popular musicians, people mm -hmm. you might hear on the radio. It's still a very fine line. There's only so much you can do and keep that radio spot. Yeah. You think about some of the MCs like Boots Riley, for example, who have taken major political stances in their work, who have never achieved the kind of radio success as, as other MCs, but have still become underground kind of heroes for people. But even with the kinds of notoriety that some people do achieve in the popular realm, you have to play the part. And that 
in later life, people often reveal as having done a radical disservice to their music, to their identities, to the kinds of work that they actually mm. wanted to perform in their communities. Mm. So it's still a balancing act. How much are you going to be representative of those people who don't have the microphone, and how much are you going to concede space to the industry that keeps you fed? Good Lord. <laughs> she's, dropping, she's dropping bars. Um, I, I recognize that not everything that is sung, um, not every contribution we've made uh, uh, to music in this country um, has been socially redemptive. I think of Marvin Gaye now. Marvin saying, uh, what's going on, but he also saying, let's get it on. So it ain't, everything ain't got to be socially redemptive. We, we love good music, period. And yet it seems to me that black people, more than any other community uh, of artists, has, has always used empathy or tended to use empathy as the way in uh, artistically. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. And why is that? I do want to say yeah. that pleasure is important. <laughs> so let's get it on is not, not important, <laughs> yes. right? We need exactly. our sexual healing also. So I want to be clear about that. But <laughs> yes, I do think that there are real questions around that balance, right? That yeah. that one seems to undercut the other sometimes, mm -hmm. that we, we might forget about the deeply, radically attuned, like politically attuned Marvin Gaye if we're only stuck in this 1983 moment mm -hmm. of sexual healing, right? Mm -hmm. This is why we have to, but we have to give our artists space to evolve and change and be all of themselves. We're three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. We have to allow all of those elements. Langston Hughes said we're beautiful and we're ugly too. We have ugly moments. And we're human, but this is about this politics of representation that our musicians are still burdened by, right? Mm -hmm. we can, if we're only allowed to uplift the race, only show our clean laundry rather than our dirty laundry, we're ultimately dehumanizing ourselves because we're all of those things and we're allowed to be. It's not to say that everything is going to be perfectly fit to our plans or political agendas, but it is to say that we'll always be human in the process. And so we have to show and, re and, re and regard all of those elements of ourselves. Mm -hmm. That leads me to a final question when we come forward about performance politics. We're talking with Dr. Shauna L. Redman. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Tavis Smiley and Dr. Shauna L. Redman on KBLA Talk 1580. I have to have her back because we... Literally haven't even scratched the surface with regard to her work and witness and um, this conversation uh, we've been having about the historical impact of music, uh, our music in protest. Um, uh, again, just leaves uh, so many questions uh, unanswered in this hour. So we'll have to do this again, a part two, maybe a part three somewhere down the road. But I want to close in the, in the three minutes I have left. We were talking about empathy a moment ago, Dr. Rebin. I want to close talking uh, about um, the link that you would make. I don't want to color this any more than this. The link between the empathy that black folk tend to express in their lyricism and performance politics? We have a very distinct vantage on the world as black people who have endured massive injustice, violence, disaffection from the state, disaffection from places of origin. We have a very unique perspective on the world, and that has been filtered historically through these means of empathy as a means of drawing other people into our orbit, not simply for the sake of fandom or some kind of 
um, kind of social call, but this is actually, again, this is the politics of blackness, which is about broad-based community building in search of those things that are rightly due and owed to us, the kinds of political futures that we envision that are staked not on radical singularity or individuality, but around community and around building and sustainability. Mm-hmm. If, if Harry Belafonte and my friend Mr. B were here, he'd put it this way: "Get the world to sing your song. Get the world." And I want to yeah. know who you are. That's you got That's it. That's right. You got it. Get the world to sing your song, and they will want to know who you are. Uh, her name is Dr. Shauna L. Redmond. Uh, her books are, are amazing uh, pieces of work uh, to dig into. Uh, the one uh, we, I referenced earlier in the conversation was called Anthem. It is, is called Anthem. Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora. It's a classic text. Uh, and I love this Paul Robeson text. It's called Everything Man, the Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Again, she's got so much work. We just uh, tried to scratch the surface on some of it in this hour, but we'll do it again, hopefully somewhere down the road. Dr. Redman, thank you for your work and your witness. Thank you for your, um, your testimony to the world. And thank you for coming on in this hour. I immensely uh, appreciate it and enjoyed it. So happy to do it. Thank you. My honor to have you. That's our show for today. Time now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson to be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. It don't matter around here. We got you covered either way. Uh, back here tomorrow morning, Lord willing to do it all over again, 9 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific time. Until then, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.